Hello and welcome to the 112th Dairy Dialogue podcast. I know 112 is the number for the emergency services in many European countries. Hopefully no need to call it during today's show. And I'm also not sure if the UK continuing to use 112 is one of the hot burning Brexit topics as negotiations on a trade deal go on and on. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and while we could have run with four interviews this week, I decided to go with three, as we have some insights on the future of food, what the colour will be for 2021 in food and beverages, and sustainability. We are about to move down a lockdown level at the end of this week here, I believe, although I'm not exactly sure what that means. But the first person in the UK was vaccinated against COVID this week. It was a 91-year-old lady who, I now assume, can go to sporting events without a mask and get as close as she wants to anyone in the supermarket. There's still no order emerging as to who will have priority and also what the timelines are, but at least vaccinations have started. That wouldn't be a bad Christmas present under the tree, but I'm not sure how you'd keep it cold enough, or even who would administer it. Maybe you could just keep it outside if you lived in places like northern Minnesota or northern Ontario, but then only in the winter. I haven't seen any vaccines on eBay yet either, but definitely some verbal fisticuffs online with some colourful discussions between pro and anti-vaccine people. Before we get to this week's news, let me fill you in on today's guests. We have conversations with Lorraine Johnson, content marketing specialist at GNT Group, Professor Jacqueline Bruescher, full professor at the Athena Institute, Freya Universität Amsterdam, and project coordinator of Fit for Food 2030. And also with Jacobin Dasgupta, director of sustainability at DSM. And of course, we also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X. All right, it's news time. Mexican dairy company Grupo Lala is going to close its Costa Rica operation. We had the monthly global dairy commodity update from Maxim Foods. Pro Ampac has acquired three Canadian packaging companies. Danone has expanded its parental leave options in the US, and there was an update from Fonterra on its Farmgate milk price range and first quarter performance. Friesland Campina is ending powder production at two of its plants in the Netherlands, and UK cheese exporter Summerdale International has seen its profits go up. Onua Ingredients Europe launched a new pizza cheese range for the UK delivery market. Total, Intrapla and Yoplait are using polystyrene from chemical recycling in yogurt pots. And Nestle Brasil introduced SIG paper straws on its Nescau carton packs. In Finland, VTT has created plastic bottles from waste citrus peel. And in the UK, Müller debuted its new programme for dairy farmers. And finally, another cutting-edge packing article, Amcor has launched the first recyclable shrink bag for cheese. You can read all these and quite a few more at dairyreporter.com.
let's get on with the show. We're all fed up with 2020 and coronavirus. So what will 2021 have in store? Hopefully we can concentrate on more normal things next year. And so it's time for all of the potential trends for 2021. As far as colour goes, according to Expiry Colouring Foods supplier GNT Group, 2021 will be red. So that means Belgium wins the Euros, Liverpool the Champions League and the Buccaneers the Super Bowl. Not bad shouts actually. But the red they are referring to relates to food and beverages. And to tell us more is Lorraine Janssen, content marketing specialist at GNT Group. I guess it's the time of year when everybody starts coming out with their trends for 2021. How do yes. you how do you figure out what the trends are going to be? Of course, we start very early with that. We always look out for all the trends uh, that are going on. And we saw this trend rising up in other areas than the food and drink industry. So we saw it in design, in fashion, in beauty, in film. And so we saw the red coming up in a lot of uh, areas. So now it's the turn of the food and drink industry. And I think because of the pandemic, uh, a lot of chaos has been created over the year, over the past year. Therefore, last year, the green and blue shades were very on uh, on the rise. Everybody wanted to connect with nature. And now we see that there's a lot of contradiction going on. Red is a, a color that is one side energizing and invigorating, but it can also bring fun, excitement. Red really expresses, for example, love and on the other hand, hate. How that translates into food, how you see that translating into food. Of course, Instagram is a real good example. There's the Instagram generation where yeah, all the products need to look appealing and attractive. And uh, I think red really is a color you cannot ignore. It brings everything to life. It really attracts attention, red, and I think it also stimulates appetite. So it really brings a connection to indulgent temptation and elegant sophistication. And we see that's different in every category. For example, in the savory category, we see that people are looking for adventure. So they want to satisfy the taste for adventure, exploring new flavors like hot and spicy. And uh, I think red brings a lot of dishes to life. For example, in uh, the snack and cereal category, we see it's time for the next level snacks. People are trying new flavors where beer, popcorn, for example, or spicy hot chili chips. In the confectionery category, we see that there's a rise on, for example, vitamin gummies. People want uh, additional benefits to their products. So vitamin gummies is a good example, and it really connects with sweetness, and red connects with sweetness. But, for example, in desserts, you see yeah, more premium pleasures. An example is fruity chia. So uh, you have a light purple color chia with a very exciting red topping on top of it, uh, like a compote and berries and a lot of fruits. And obviously there are different shades of red and different ways to get it. And I know that one of the things in the last again, year or so has been the rise in plant-based and, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. a lot of people that are changing to a vegan diet are starting to find that they can't have carmine because it's from insects. So yeah. uh, I guess clearly what the reds are made of is also as important as the red itself. 
definitely. And I think uh, the clean label trend has even uh, become bigger uh, and the plant-based trend as well. And then coloring foods are perfect for that because from G&T, they're only made from fruit, vegetables and plants with no chemical solvents. So it means that all the manufacturers can replace their colorants like carmine with a clean label plant-based solution. And you will see that in plant-based meat, for example. Transparency is an Innova stop trend for 2021. So consumers want to know exactly where their uh, ingredients are coming from. Our fruit, vegetables and plants are traceable, fully traceable and non-GMO. In addition, we have an organic range. So that will fit perfectly with the trend of plant-based clean label. Obviously, there are many different kinds of reds, many different shades of reds. When it comes to your customers, are you able to meet exactly the red that they're looking for? Expert always provides full support so that we will always match the color with what the customer wants. We have a team of experts available to match the different shades. But for 2021, we see a big trend on fiery red. And I guess it's also important that this is something that when you put it into something like a a yogurt or a drink, that it's consistent throughout the whole thing and it's not red at the top and pink at the bottom. You have to make sure that Exactly. Yeah. So every application uh, provides its own challenges in terms of the pH, the heat and the light. And the key to success is understanding the aspects that will affect the different coloring foods in the different application. And we have a pilot plant that enables us to perfect our solutions and the experts can provide the comprehensive support to ensure customers get the color effect they need. So it's personalized. We also have different formulations. We have liquid, Xperry liquid products. We have Xperry powder products, and those are applicable for different types of products. Also oil-based, that is more perfect for a chocolate or fat-based products. Recently, we have also expanded the range of micronized powders and with the beetroot-based Fiesta Pink. And that product has smaller particle sizes than the standard range. So with that new product, we can achieve a more homogeneous color effect. And that's applicable for instant beverages, press tablets or chocolates. So we really focus our innovation on specific applications. So I guess then you can work with your customers every step of the way from what they want to the end product in the color that they want. Yeah, we cover the whole rainbow with colors. It can be used in almost any food and drink application, but we constantly strive to deliver new and improved solutions for the customers. And our team of experts is always available to assist the customers through each step of the process. And that's from color matching to stability testing all the way through regulatory support and upscaling. Are you seeing any other important trends right now? So we see the big trend for the clean label because transparency is is a big demand from consumers, especially during the pandemic. People want to know where their products are coming from and where they're made of. So the clean label trend, we see the plant-based trend yeah, is bigger than ever. Of course, Instagrammable appeal is important. Everyone is on Instagram nowadays, so the look of a product is uh, very important and color can play a big part in that. All right, great. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yes. uh, So we have a vertically integrated supply uh, chain from day one. We've worked with many of our farmers for decades uh, already. And this approach 
gives us the high quality raw materials and full traceability um, as well as price and stock stability also during uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I guess that must be something that's important as well. I mean, you you don't think about food coloring as being something that's subject to issues of supply, but Mm -hmm. obviously if you have a particularly dry year and certain fruits or vegetables are in short supply, then that must affect your ability to source those products. Yeah, for sure. And also with all the borders that are closed, the, the, closed, the food and beverage industry, uh, that's a challenge. But for us, although the pandemic has created challenges, because of the vertical supply chain, it means we have been able to maintain our consistent supply of our raw materials throughout. So that's a big benefit for us and our customers. And we also hold the extensive stock of raw materials and finished products to ensure that we never have to let the customers down. The need to provide enough animal protein for a growing global population while reducing the environmental costs of farming is going to require some smart science and some new solutions. To address this challenge, DSM Animal Nutrition and Health has in place a strategic initiative called We Make It Possible. To tell us more about the initiative and how it relates to dairy is Jacobine Descupta, Director of Sustainability at DSM. Happy to speak to you today, Jim. My name is Jacobine Dasgupta. I'm Director of Sustainability and Lead for the Nutrition Cluster. And in this role, I have the privilege to work with innovation marketing around our company, Royal DSM, a B2B company that is the world's leader in micronutrients ingredients. And we work with people who are into human nutrition science, animal nutrition science, as well as sustainability. And combining all of those makes us an actor that really wants to change the world of food systems. And what is this all about? This is all about bringing back nutrition in the food. It's more sustainable production of all kinds of foods and also reducing food loss and waste in different value chains. And I'm pleased to talk with you today a little bit more about the value chains of the different forms of dairy. That's great. And I think that it wasn't that long ago, end of September, that we had the first International Day of Awareness on Food Loss and Waste. So I guess it's something that is as important to consumers now as it is to companies, governments and organizations. Yes, absolutely. And it also, I would say, identified as a key lever by World Resource Institute, uh, the FAO. It's really a shame that one third of all the food is lost or wasted from the field to the fork. And uh, we also know it's the equivalent of 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And if food waste were a country, it would be the third emitting country in the world after US and China. So it's not only a big spoilage, it's also a huge opportunity to meet the Paris Agreement. And that's also why I truly think it's something we should act upon. Maybe to add, as you may know, COVID-19 also have made matters worse. It's even up to 80% in some regions due to labor restrictions, export restrictions. And uh, so it's even becoming a more prominent issue that... uh, I believe everybody should be involved in. And how much of the of what we see in terms of food waste and food loss is associated with the dairy industry and in what ways? 
Well, the UK agency RAP identified dairy in the top three of the most lost and wasted food and beverages. And so it's really high. And um, the UN FAO says between 12 and 25 percent, depending on the region, of dairy is lost or wasted in some form. In Europe, probably about the lower side, say 12 to 15 percent. And it's actually lost in bits and pieces along the value chain. It's lost, for instance, at the farm or, or wasted because of contamination, uh, because of antibiotics that sometimes occur in smart parts, amounts of the milk, and then a lot has to be thrown away because cows are treated against mastitis or other health. And this even costs about $32 billion a year. So it's at the farm where percentages are lost. It's also in the logistic and the production of the food for instance, of cheese and yogurt. And another 5% is lost over there. We dived into it to see and to unpack it and to see what can we do about it. And we learned that it's due to batching errors, cleaning fats, it's also errors in ingredient labeling or disapproval of milk quality. And also in cheese, for instance, when uh, cheese is cured. So different pieces where gains can be also found. And at the retailer, another 2 to 6% is wasted, and that's slight imbalance. Purchase management, but also shelf life expiration. And at the consumption site in Europe, no less than 9% of yogurt and cheese is wasted because the consumers find the taste or the looks not so good anymore or the date is expired. So there is also a lot to be won. And um, that's also why we are keen on understanding <laughs> First, the amounts and the reasons, and then also to see what can we do about it. You mentioned a lot of different things there and a lot of different steps of that food chain. I guess there's not really any one-size-fits-all way to address it, but what can be done to address some of those issues at some of those steps? Maybe give you three examples. At One at the farm uh, with certain micronutrient solutions in the feed of the cows, these diseases like mastitis and other health can be magnificently changed and uh, resulting in even up to 50% less losses. In the production, there are solutions that make it in the curation of cheese, for instance, that there is less mold forming, so the crust is less thick. And also extending shelf life in retail and at the consumption side is really important. And we know that if you have seven days of longer shelf life, so that you can put the expiration date seven days later, you can also reduce 20% of waste at the consumption side. And this can be done by natural cultures, for instance, in, for instance, in yogurt. So that makes something really tangible and measurable. And how can DSM help directly with some of these issues? All of the above. <laughs> Actually, internally, as, you, as I stated at the start, we have a very strong base of scientists, food application and nutrition and sustainability. And we split it into three levels. We call it improve, enable, advocate. So what can we do ourselves in our own canteens? We apply new technologies to measure food waste in canteens and bring it down and see, for instance, with pilots, such as clear the plate in China. And for instance, that particular pilot 
already resulted in 25% of food waste in our own canteens. This is, of course, perhaps more symbolic, but important. What we call enable is there's where our scientists and innovation managers come in. And here is where we provide feed ingredients, such as vitamins. Here we also help provide cultures to help food producers of yogurt and cheese to do the processing as uh, resource efficient as possible. And where we help with extending shelf life, as we call it, Delvogard is one of the biopreservatives, is an element that you can add to the yogurt and to ensure it stays safe, nutritious, tasty, and extends the shelf life. And last but not least, we also try to advocate for food loss and waste. And maybe you've heard about the World Resource Institute Champions 12.3. It's a group of senior private sector leaders, heads of state and civil society. And we are really rallying for halving food loss and waste, SDG 12.3, bringing out case studies, encouraging everybody to measure and also to reduce and setting also own targets. So we really try to ingrain it in people's minds uh, and thinking. Uh, we are actively searching for solutions, working with partners, and we also advocating for uh, reducing food loss and waste as a very important means to feed the world. And you mentioned cheese earlier. I wonder if you could expand a bit on some of the solutions that you have that would help in this area. In the production of cheese, we all know that Taste is everything. It should smell right. It should look right. And actually, some omissions in this are actually the reasons why people at the consumption end throw away cheese. So it really needs to stay well. And also, we try to avoid some losses in the production. So we have three solutions in different types of cheeses that help to be more efficient and prevent losses and waste. The first is so-called pack age. It's a cheese ripener solutions that prevents the formulation of mold in hard cheeses. So think about Parmesan and Gouda. It's a membrane solution and it's used in hard to semi hard cheeses and it protects while it's ripening in the ripening process. And we know that if all Gouda and Parmesan cheese would be ripened with this solution, it would save around 200,000 tons of cheese every year because the mold and the crust is less thick. It doesn't need to be thrown away. And we also know that it's the equivalent of 6.2 million tons of CO2. And this is exactly the reason why our customers are interested because it's less throwing away of cheese, but also significant reducing their carbon footprint. As many of our dairy customers set targets on this, science-based targets for greenhouse gas emissions, or even go further and want to go to net zero, this becomes a critical element. And a second solution is Delvo cheese, and that's used in mozzarella. And we know that the yield is up to 103%. It's uh, helping to slice it better. And, and the slicing means that the reducing cutting losses are... 15%, and that is an equivalent about the carbon footprint of 12%. We really have this type of solutions that altogether make it more efficient and help in the process that due to less cutting, due to more 
easy ripening, at the end, you're left with less waste. And are there any other examples? The production side has been not given enough attention. There is a, quite some attention also by the European Commission on reducing food waste at the consumption side. But upstream, there is a lot of to gain, like at the farm, like these micronutrients feed ingredients that can help bringing down mastitis and other health and really, really can make a significant reduction. It's also doing tests and antibiotics in milk, as we offer as DSM also the Delvo test, that also helps to prevent contamination. We can do a lot of some resource efficiency at the farm and in the early stages. And in the production side, I think we simply should not accept anymore that we have calculated in 5% losses. If we are a bit more careful and we start to see food as the precious food again as it is, and not something that you should easily or could easily waste, we can make magnificent steps. So I would pledge for all farmers, food producers and retailers to be very critical about every step in the chain and don't let opportunities uh, slip. So really stepping up the game and making sure that you know what's happening and asking for help. And there's many companies that start to be very aware. They set also targets on food loss and waste. And we are very keen as DSM to help with our animal and human nutrition and food application solutions to do whatever it takes to reduce these losses and waste. And dairy is a value chain where there's a lot of uh, losses. It's the mozzarella cheese, the gouda, parmesan, uh, and so on. It's yogurt, but there's also other value chains like meat and juice and eggs. And also there, and that goes uh, beyond the purpose of today's interview, uh, we can do a lot with different interventions. So don't think we are there, I think the technology and the processes can still make a big step up to uh, to get this amount of food loss and waste down. There are lots of companies and lots of governments and all of them have targets and some of them are way into the future. Is 2030 and food waste of reduction of 50% achievable by 2030, do you think? It is achievable, but it's all hands on deck. And... It's all hands on deck for the food producers to take this very seriously and do not accept this couple of percentages loss but bringing it down. It's also new innovations that are needed for better data management and tracking and tracing. It's not all there. Not everybody knows exactly what the losses and waste are and then you can't improve. So you need to measure and then you can manage. And I also call upon the, the governments to include this in their national Paris Agreement equivalent, so the nationally determined commitments, NDCs, reducing food loss and waste is an excellent way to bring down the greenhouse gas emissions. So it will not happen automatically. But if the producers and if the governments and also the citizens feel responsible, it is achievable. Earlier, you mentioned about the food waste in terms of it being the third biggest 
behind the US and China. How are we able to address some of those regional variations in food waste, especially as it relates to dairy? Because obviously some countries produce much more than others and some have more efficiencies than others. That's correct. And what you see is that there are proportional differences. In Northern Europe and North America and Europe, there is 61% of the waste is at the retailer and the consumption level. So there is relatively smaller amounts of waste in at the farm, at the production, and so on. But Southeast Asia and Africa, it's the other way around. There we see much more waste on the field, in the crops or perhaps livestock products where that go to waste on their way to the factory or to the retailer. So it is needed to really have a regional approach, depending where proportionally there is most waste. But there are some cross-cutting and valuable solutions everywhere. And I have to come back here also to the measurability and traceability. If that's more visible, if more people start to see what's left on the field, what doesn't reach the food producer or the factory, and what's left at the consumption, I find it, for instance, a huge amount, 9%, that, that's left over at the consumption side, there will be a change. And on top of that, there is new tracking and tracing, as new technologies that can inform farmers, that can inform food producers. Uh, where is all these perishable goods? Where are the, the livestock products and the crops? And by having better monitoring and better measurement, can make significant steps, and that's across the globe. So to bring it back to We Make It Possible initiative of DSM, this is our statement and our invitation to change the livestock sector from within. So all the solutions and initiatives um, that take place at the farm in livestock products, such as dairy, meat and eggs, we have bundled and we call it We Make It Possible because we can amplify, we can help to have the animals in best possible health and well-being, but also to reduce the environmental impact. And with this growing population, and both animal and plant proteins are expected to grow, we will need all interventions to bring down the environmental impact. And food loss and waste is a huge intervention and a huge, has a huge potential in this broader context. So linking back, we make it possible initiative to invite others to reduce the environmental impact of animal proteins and food loss and waste being an excellent lever for that. And we now have another interesting interview about Fit for Food 2030 with Professor Jacqueline Broescher, full professor at the Athena Institute, Freie Universiteit Amsterdam, who is the project coordinator of Fit for Food 2030 and can tell us all about it. So could you give me some background on Fit for Food 2030? Okay. It's, a, it's a, basically an EU project. Uh, like many of the projects in the EU that are focused on what we call a coordinated and support action that is not so much on research and innovation but very much about bringing stakeholders together to move a subject further and Fit for Food is connected to the Food 2030 policy framework 
And I don't know whether you've heard about it, but that's an important policy framework within the European Union to guide research and innovation in relation to food system transformation. And to support that policy framework, they wanted a project that would help them bring the ideas of that Food 2030 policy framework further. And what we have done within, within Fit for Food is building a platform, bringing together a large diversity of stakeholders from different sectors, from different disciplines, Think about researchers, but also policymakers, the private sector, so businesses, but also including farmers and representatives of civil society, as well as consumers and citizens. And that platform is made up of different, what we call labs, policy labs and city labs. In total, we have established 25 such labs across Europe, bringing together a wide variety of stakeholders to discuss about issues of food system transformation. So thinking about what sort of visions they would like, they see in front of them in thinking about the food system in 2030, what would they hope it looks like from the perspective of sustainability, but also thinking about how to get there. That is partly what sort of research and innovation do we need? But also, what sort of competencies do we need? Do we have the competencies that are necessary for this new food system? And what sort of policies do we need? Uh, how can we build policies that align with these ideas? Right. And why is it necessary? We know it's food safety, food sustainability. It's a very important subject. So why was this put together? Mm. Yeah, it is put together because... Uh, there is an increasing feeling of urgency that the food system, as we, or I, we may even say food systems, there's not just one, food systems are not functioning in line with number of values we think are important. And you already mentioned sustainability. And that's one of the most important values that increasing numbers of people feel that are at stake in our current food system. And it's also much, very much looking at the diets that people consume. So at the end of the, of the food value chain are the consumers. And there are serious concerns about the health of people due to the diets that they're eating. Many of the problems uh, with non-communicable diseases are related to unhealthy diets. So diets that are very much reliant on highly processed foods that are high in fat, unsaturated fats, uh, sugar, uh, salt, etc. But also that the foods that we consume are not necessarily contributing to the sustainability. And that means that uh, many of the foods come from food production that um, uses uh, high levels of chemicals, fertilizers. We have, of course, the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions that is considered a problem in relation to climate change. So we see a lot of those concerns coming together in the, in the food system. And just coming back to the, the unhealthy diets, obesity is an incredible problem and it's a, it's a growing problem. And we can even see that now 
large numbers of our population, I think it's about 25% are close to obese uh, and definitely overweight. It's huge numbers. And that, of course, also puts lots of pressure on our health system in the end, because it leads to uh, cardiovascular diseases and certain types of cancers and diabetes. So the sustainability of our food system also very much relates to the sustainability of our health system. Therefore, it is the feeling that we need to do things differently. But actually, it's not just simple changes. The changes that we need are much larger, and that's why we call about a food system transformation. And as many transformations we have seen in the past, research and innovation can have an important catalytic role in supporting such transformations. So... What sort of research and innovation do you then need? And how can, can that come about? What sort of research programs do we need? So therefore, on the one hand, a food system transformation is necessary, but also accompanying research and innovation is necessary. And that delivers Fit for Food 2030 as a project. And then on top of that, I suppose, is the communication piece, because you've not only got to achieve all of this, you've got to, I guess, in some ways, sell it to the uh, population. Yeah, there's a bit of a problem there, because uh, if you want to sell those kinds of things, we know from experience that it only uh, has limited effectiveness, because issues like diets, it's, it's, it's a routine, it's something we got, it's habitual, and by just communicating more, it won't work to change diets. We know that. So you need to be much more creative and do also things much more collaboratively. So it's not just selling, it's also doing things together. I think when it comes to transformation of people's diets, obviously finances is something that comes into play, especially when you consider that with the COVID pandemic, people are losing jobs and it's not always necessarily that easy because to move to a better diet, it also sometimes means a more expensive diet. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, of course, what they say about creating a level playing field that so far subsidies are, well, the, the entire system is more geared towards the traditional production and consumption than towards these novel products. So if we consider sustainability to be a very important issue, you would expect that incentives would go more into that direction, but incentives are not yet favoring sustainable production very much. So people that, that farmers that want to make the change towards more circular systems, for example, they are facing the challenge of high costs for transitions, while the market is not very stable at the moment, definitely not that large at the moment. So even if farmers and, and many actors are willing to do it, the incentive structures are not in place. And obviously farming is an important aspect of this too, because in order to transform food, we also probably have to transform at the farm level as well. I would also say, if you look at many of the visions about a sustainable food system, and that one of the action points is often reducing 
consumption of meat and animal products, and you do have livestock yourself, you are in that business, I can imagine that you feel threatened because it's your livelihood. Being a farmer is not an easy job. It's hard work and it's, it's your fa- usually they're family businesses. And I think that many farmers are in a difficult position because uh, I would say that players in the middle of the food system actually are so, have become over the years, the decades, so dominant that the ones at the end, and I mean that's the farmers at the start and the, and the consumers at the end actually stand to lose out. Farmers are in, in this current system, many of them have a hard time making money. And then with all these changes going on, their position becomes even more uncertain. I think we therefore should much more, and that's also what, what these uh, such platforms are about, much more have a really fundamental discussion about fairness in the system for each and every actor. I think that power differentials are, are too problematic now, too skewed. It's important to have dialogue in order for them to A, not feel threatened, and B, to give them incentives and methods to change. Yeah, and what would help them? Because we we need to do something. (laughs) We can't sit still, let's say, both from the health side as well as the... so, So both from planetary health and human health side. Increasingly, there is this urgency for change and the realization that we're heading towards a dead end. Right. Uh, but how that that new food system will look like and how we can get there, that's still very much up for debate. And, and research and innovation can play an important role there. But we also need to realize that our current research and innovation is also, just like the food system, highly fragmented. So what uh, the Food 2030 policy framework of the European Union is saying is that we need, if we want to research and innovation to contribute meaningfully and effectively to this food system transformation, we also need to have research and innovation that is capable of a systems approach. So if we're going to tweak with our research and innovation just a little bit here on the production side, it doesn't mean it will help in, in transforming the system and lead to, to, for example, change diets. And that's what a, a systems approach is about. That you take an entry point in the system, of course, somewhere, you start somewhere, but still look at all the different steps and, and layers in that food system and uh, take that into account. Because in a, in a system, there are always unexpected trade-offs, and, and barriers that are taking place. And I think that many, many will notice that sometimes you will realize, okay, this policy is actually constraining the implementation of this new technology. And so unless you work together with policymakers to work in alignment, it won't work. And how does the and how does the Fit for Food 2030 program help with this? And what tools do you have for that transformation? The building of these platforms. So the platform through all these labs, you need to do it place-based. That's what we often say. Change happens because people want it to happen. 
Yeah, so people have what we call agency. We have developed systems. We are subsequently shaped by those systems because they provide routines, rules and regulation that actually uh, somehow nudge us into doing what we're supposed to do within to have this system function. At the same time, through reflecting on this and what we do, we can take up our agency and say, okay, we need to take a step back. We are not going to do this on routine basis. We are going to change things. So you need to do that at local level. And the labs in itself have developed all sorts of tools to achieve that. The coordinators in the labs have been trained to take up this role as catalyst. And that means that they have learned how to bring together a wide diversity of stakeholders, discuss with them, do a systems analysis. So what is this food system? What, what do we have now? How does it look like? It also taught them how to conduct visioning exercises. How, what's, what will the food system look like in 2030, 2040 or 2050? and has enabled them to do backcasting exercises. So what sort of actions do we need to take now together to make this happen? And for that, we have developed all sorts of tools, cards that you can use, games that you can use to help people make sense of such a complex issue, because it is a complex issue, very abstract initially. So you have to make it really, really down to earth. <laughs> All those tools have been put into the knowledge hub that we have developed. It's a kind of online repository. So it gives guidelines about the tools. What are they? But also the practical experiences of the different labs. So they have worked with it. So they have experiences. So can they, they can share these experiences. So how, how will you be working together with researchers, funders, policymakers, companies, because again, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. Yeah, they, they are all included in the, in the different labs we have set up, especially the ones at national level, the policy labs that are called. We have 11 policy labs that are active at national level. They are coordinated by one or two people that are supported by two different ministries. So that's that we already have that intersectoral collaboration at national level. And there we have the researchers, funders and policymakers directly together. But also the private sector and civil society organizations. At local level, there is much less research and innovation funding because that's, that's at city level. But we try to include as much as possible the municipalities. So the city councils. What we are trying to do at local level is in, in the Netherlands, it's called an academic workplace where you bring together researchers and stakeholders so that uh, researchers can better understand the questions from practice and collaborate with stakeholders. So there it's much more influencing the conduct of researchers. So we see at the national level more at a policy level trying to achieve the changes and interactions and at the local level much more the actual conduct of research. And how is this measurable? Because obviously 
all projects have good intentions. How do you make sure that this is achieving what you want it to achieve? Yeah, that's what that's the death valley of many projects, huh? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, we are well aware of it. A couple of things to say about it. First of all, we have been thinking about this right from the start. That helps, not automatically provide solutions, but it helps. So we have been thinking about how can we continue the activities of the labs and the existence of the labs, not within the project, but in itself. So that means that it's important to link it to some structures that are already there. And in some cases, this is already achieved. The labs that we have developed are already absorbed by existing structures. That helps. But it doesn't mean that it, this has already occurred for all the different labs. Something I didn't yet talk about is the think tank we have established at EU level. This is also where we see researchers, funders and policymakers and people from civil society organizations coming together and thinking about uh, more meta discussions. So we have the local city labs and the policy national policy labs and we have the think tank uh, with experts that try to bring the lessons learned also to EU level and to other member states. So that's also something you would like to continue. And I know that the European Commission is uh, will for the next one and a half years, for the next two years, continue with a sort of think tank. So also at that level, there is a continuation taken up. Another important part is that we see at EU level that they have recently established a farm to fork strategy within the Green Deal. And quite a number of activities are being, uh, or call for proposals are very much linked to our project and are explicitly asked to take up the results of our Fit for Food project. And we are already connecting to quite a number of projects that have recently been set up to actually inform them about what we have developed, so the tools for transformation, and how they can be applied and the, and the overall lessons learned. So uh, by bringing that, this to other projects, we hope that they can build on it. And so overall, how effective has the project been? What our um, ambition was to put things in place like we promised, and I think we did that. Well, we consider ourselves, but also others from outside who look at the project, consider it to be a successful project in delivering what it has promised to deliver. But our main concern is what we discussed, is the sustainability of it, bringing it forward, making sure that what has been realized is now picked up by others. And our funding stops. Uh, by the end of this year, we are done. <laughs> and so it's up to others to, to pick it up and keep on running. Uh, many of our project partners, consortium partners, are networks themselves. And I'm pretty sure that they will take it further. So I'm not, I'm not too pessimistic in this case. No, not at all. I'm actually pretty optimistic. Good. And so will it now be taken up by other groups and organizations in order to move this forward and see more progress? 
Yeah, groups and other projects within the farm to fork strategy. I think given the fact that it is all part of this holistic strategy, this farm to fork strategy, and the European Commission is very much, because that's why they set up this project in the first place. They are very much geared towards these collaborative networks. They see that if you want to make changes in these in the food system, you need many stakeholders to work together. It's a joint responsibility. Nobody can do it alone. We have we need each other. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Butter was stronger this week. Um, skim milk powder remained uh, relatively flat on the future side. And whey, uh, a bit stronger as well, continued to see uh, strong end user buying, pushing prices higher. December butter remained relatively flat, um, the same as skim milk powder. Um, we're basically down to the last quotation of the month for the December settlement of the contracts ahead of Christmas. So. Um, December was is trading around 33.30 in butter. Uh, quarter one uh, then got a premium around 40 euros on that, trading around 33.70 level, which is up around 60-65 euros on the week. Quarter two was stronger by about 30 euros on the week, trading up at around 34.40 level. And then quarter three of 2021 was up around 15 euros on the week to the 35.15 level. Skimmel powder, as I say, in December, the same as butter, was uh, flat, uh, trading around the 2200 level. Quarter one, more or less the same level as last week, 2245, 2250 level. Quarter two um, was a little bit stronger, trading up around the 2280 level, maybe up around 10 euros on the week. And then quarter three of 2021 was up around 20 euros on the week to the 2310 level. Way as I say, has been trading a bit stronger as well as we continue to see a strong end-user demand trading around the 780-800 level. Thanks, Liam. Talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. I have no idea how many sleeps it is to Christmas, but I do know it's two podcasts to the big day that begins way too early and generally involves way too much food. And by that, I mean Christmas, not the podcast. I hope if you celebrate that you've managed to get all the shopping done because it's kind of getting to that time when shipping gifts is cutting it close. We already have all of the interviews done for the next podcast, and we also have some more interviews to do over the next few days for the one after, so I hope you will join us again for those. I also hope, wherever you are, that you have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.